0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Chipotle, MGM, and Microsoft take a bite out of food waste, an approach to making the SDGs relatable to individuals, ING's new strategy to support the Paris Agreement. And how to make sustainability personal. Wait, I thought this was strictly business. This week on 350. It's October 5th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always from across the USA is GreenBiz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. What about you? You're actually home. <laughs> yes, this is, a, this is the first time in maybe a month that I'm actually doing 350 from 350. Uh, it's just been um, a wild and woolly um, September month of travel. I was in the office um, to count them two days. But you know, I'm around now, and we are on the home stretch for you know what coming after the week coming up after uh, in a week or two. The Verge 2018 is all-consuming. We're doing all of our uh, prep calls to speakers and last-minute nipping and tucking of the agenda and uh, putting a bow on a few things and um, it's everyone's you can feel the energy in the office
1: the energy and the pressure
0: <laughs> yeah there's a it's a little stressful um i, I just noticed that the people are head down to uh, this week and uh, as well they should be and the you know as always it'll be for a good cause and a great event so i'm really looking forward to that um where have you been this week
1: so I'm home too. I had the opportunity to go to Ad Week, if you can believe it. Not the normal conference for, for our team to attend, but I helped with a session uh, that MSL put together on how to, basically, describe your sustainability program in terms that that will show value to your shareholders. So it, it basically the mapping sustainability to your overall corporate messaging. It's kind of a cool session, um, with Mars, um, DSM and Danone. So great companies talking about how to build it as part of your strategy.
0: So what was your message about messaging?
1: <laughs> my message about messaging was, uh, my, well, pers- not my personal message, but the, but the message is to make it part of the overall corporate value and not to consider it off on the side, um, but you have to obviously tread that fine line of making sure that you're not greenwashing. But one of the things that we did talk about, which we'll be chatting more about later, is how to really map um, the progress of sustainable development goals, right? How, how to really map your, your strategy and peg it to the sustainable development goals and make that part of your overall messaging, which kind of makes it more real and and frankly, more relevant when you talk about business value. So. It was a very cool session.
0: Well, uh, speaking of sustainable development goals and everything else we've got on the agenda, let's dip into the week in review. Well, you mentioned the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. So let's talk about that in the form of two stories that we ran this week that are similar but different uh, about you know how we make sustainability uh, in general um, and the sustainable development goals in particular relevant at the personal level. And our good friend Solitar Townsend, who's the co founder of Futera Communications based in London and New York, uh, wrote an interesting piece about a project that they've been working on with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development on uh, creating something called the Good Life Goals uh, on the attempt to make the SDGs, uh, bring them down at least a few thousand feet from that very high level, 35,000, if not at ground level, at least a lot closer to what uh, people do every day and how those everyday actions relate to these 17 lofty goals. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I find them, even I personally find these very hard to get my arms around. And many of them, um, at least Intellectually speaking, we, we associate with developing economies. So it's it's very difficult when you go out into, to the general public and talk to them about the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, to get attention. So what Futera and, and um, its partner is doing are trying to ba- basically map these to personal everyday actions that an, imbi- an individual can take. So if you take like... Um, SDG number two, for example, the, the one that calls for zero hunger. The corresponding good life, uh, excuse me, good goal, good life goal is how to eat better. So you individually, how can you farm or make your own food? How can you buy local? Um, and how can you help your children develop diets and eating habits that would ultimately support that SDG goal? So they're encouraging companies to use the, the framework to you know talk about their own commitments and, and this the idea is that it'll help both employees and customers relate more personal to what's happening on a global basis with the SDGs.
0: Yeah I like this. I mean the SDGs are these amazing 17 audacious BHAG basically goals about ending poverty and ending hunger and saving the oceans and and, and everything else. And and the way they're laid out uh so far has been that this is something that others are going to do, that governments and big corporations and this, there are going to commit to all of this, but it hasn't really brought in a role for each of us and understand how our individual actions fit into these larger global goals. And I guess I, I, I applaud uh, Soli and WBCSD for bringing it down a notch or two or three to that level where we can start to relate better, to these, uh, as I said, these lofty, lofty and incredibly important goals. So um, hats off to them. And then, and then we read another piece about um, by Neil Hawkins and and Joe Arvai. Neil is head of sustainability at Dow Chemical, and Joe is a professor at uh, University of Michigan, um, and uh, – Dow and the University of Michigan have had a partnership for a long time with something called the Herb Institute, that's ERB Institute, um, which is a looks at business and sustainability. And the two wrote uh, a piece about a project that they've had uh, called the Dow Sustainability Academy within the University of Michigan. And this Dow Herb Partnership that's been very successful, productive, and they say fun in terms of. Of bringing sustainability a little bit closer to the the, the personal tools, uh, personal lives of of business students, and and moving from making the business case for sustainability and the policy backdrop against which business sustainability unfolds to a little bit more hands-on approach to uh, implementing the elusive bottom triple bottom line. So uh again it's a really interesting project like the uh, Futera one that sort of brings this down to individual level
1: and also they're pulling in their employees right so the, the they're they're trying to get the teams at Dow to think about how they apply some of these concepts to their real their real world lives and and day-to-day job roles um and things that connect to the to the 2025 sustainability goals that Dow has, there's been, I guess, three cohorts through the this program so far, the Dow Sustainability Academy, and um, I think one of the things that I that really st- stuck with me as I was reading the story was sort of the the underscoring of how important it is for someone to step outside their comfort zone, <laughs> right? So you think you have your job, and you have your 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 normal tool set of of ways to solve a problem, and often the most ob- the obvious solutions are really not the best ones that apply to um addressing a something like greenhouse gas reductions or or going out and helping preserve a habitat and those the solutions probably are going to lie outside the domain of your your team so it's a, it's a reminder that you know Anytime you're doing any kind of new corporate initiative or any business strategy, that you you really need to look at other departments and collaborate with your your colleagues across the organization. So, collaboration is always this big sort of thing that we talk about in business school as being so important to get jobs done. So why should sustainability be any different? So it kind of relates that notion back to, you know, the way people operate and manage their 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 jobs. The other thing that stuck with me was, <laughs> and, and just cuz i get i get you know you have to be persistent right you can't assume a battle is lost or or that it's won you can't take no for an answer if you get no the first time you you propose something you you got to keep trying and trying and trying by the same token you can't let you can't let others pay lip service to something you if someone says yes then you have to go and get them to follow through so everything that you're trying to do takes active engagement collaboration and follow up so and in, in many ways, it's just about doing your job, right?
0: Yes, but it's more than that. Uh, and I love the little uh, takeaways that they had. Some you mentioned avoiding solutions that are attractive only because they're obvious or easy, which is to say tackling the hard stuff. But the other one that I like is uh, about making change agent part of your job description and and not waiting to be anointed a sustainability person, but Bestowing that upon yourself to to step in, and this is something: a step in and find ways to integrate sustainability into whatever job you have. They write, when it comes to sustainability in business, be prepared to invent the job you want and then go do it. I'm ending the quote now, but I'm adding commentary. Even though it may not be something you're tasked to do, uh, I think we see that a lot. And. You know, that we'll talk in a few minutes about the state of the profession report and play a little excerpt from the webcast that we did this week. But this is very much on the minds uh, of of sustainability people and people who want to be in that field but don't have necessarily sustainability-specific jobs. There are many, many, many ways that you can exercise your passion, your interest, your concern uh, for environment and sustainability in, a, in any job, and I love that that's the spirit of what they're talking about. So let's move over to uh, a piece that you wrote, Heather, about uh, trimming food waste, um, specifically uh, Chipotle, MGM, and Microsoft. Talk about what's going on here.
1: So this is one of those stories that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> as I was researching it. Um, but you know, so let's start with the problem we We know that that uh, food waste is a huge issue there's there's way too much of it. Uh, the United States is particularly culpable. It's just so easy not to consume things that we buy uh, if it goes bad in your refrigerator, you toss it out i mean it's just it's become a habit um, which which is unfortunate but we we do know that that we've got this sort of general call for um, from the United Nations to. You know, address this problem, and let's the the aspiration is to have food food waste over time uh, to cut it in half. So as I was researching this story, I you know, as I mentioned, there's so many different layers to the problem and to the solution. So I specifically picked one piece of the pie, so to speak, um, what businesses could do at the point of consumption. So in other words, not what you're doing to produce the food, or even um necessarily uh, how it's moving its way through the the supply chain my focus was on once it gets to the shelf or to the cafeteria or to the restaurant how do you how do you reduce food waste and and if you if you do end up having it how do you how do you handle it so i had noticed that a number of the large uh, institutional food service companies such as Aramark and uh, Cisco had basically stepped up their 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 um, messaging around this, as well as some of um, the quick service uh, restaurants and, and cafe operations. So specifically Chipotle and and IKEA, like they have a huge initiative in their cafes. Big hotels um, such as MGM Resorts are trying to standardize it. You've got food delivery startups like HelloFresh out there, really addressing this. as part of their their overall business strategy and corporate food service teams. So you mentioned Microsoft, which we managed to tuck into the headline. But basically I took a look at the different approaches that these uh, companies are using and specifically how technologies could play a role. So for example, Cisco. Cisco is one of the earliest accounts for a company called Spoiler Alert. They're a startup from Boston and their value proposition is that they help food service organizations manage their unsold or unused inventories. So their application plugs into a warehouse management system to find out what's available, um, set pricing levels that'll help move it, so to speak, you know, get other people to buy it. And then if, if that doesn't happen, to suggest places um, that might need those donations. So that that's just one example of a technology. That, that company is particularly interesting to me um, because not only are they working with Cisco, but they're also working with HelloFresh. And... You know that, that if you don't know uh, HelloFresh, they're one of the meal kit companies that you know you can buy pre-made uh, menus and, and and make sure that you um, get your your daily servings of of, of things. But um, they tested the service first before they committed to it, and they found that they were able to decrease their landfilled organic waste by 65 percent which is just an extraordinary result. And so as a result, that company did um, basically after the pilot, they they expanded their use to all of their U.S. operations. So those are just a couple of examples.
0: That's great stuff. I love the name spoiler alert. I mean, how how perfect (laughs) perfect is that? That's one of those, why didn't I think of that kinds of names?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So finally this week, we ran a podcast uh, that was based on the state of the profession report that we published last week, and uh, our colleague John Davies, vice president and senior analyst here at Green Biz Group, was joined by Dave Stangus, the head of sustainability and corporate responsibility for Campbell's Soup, and Jill Kohling, who also heads sustainability at Cargill, the giant meat uh, and produce and, and grain company. Um, and Ellen Weinreb of the Weinreb Group, who is a uh, sustainability headhunter for uh, you know big, mostly big companies and government agencies and others, to talk about the report and some of the insights. Um, so I thought we'd run a little excerpt from that. You can get a flavor. If you're welcome to go back and listen to the entire webcast, it's available on demand, and of course to download the State of the Profession report uh, from GreenBiz. It's free and a really good read, and it'll tell you whether you're making as much money as everybody else. Here's a little piece.
2: What factor would push your organization's sustainability program to the next level? Curious, Dave, what what would you say? What's the key driver at Campbell for your program?
3: Yeah, it may not surprise you from a Campbell perspective, but it is um, consumers and the way consumer behavior, not just their intentions, but the way the behavior is translated by the retailers. So, you know, we, many people think of Campbell as a B2C business, but us, the little bit that we're doing and trying to grow online, most of what we sell is B2B uh, to the Walmarts and the Kroger's and the Safeways of the world. Um That would be the biggest driver. Um, And I would say that investors and activists have always been drivers in this space, especially for publicly traded companies or companies with, you know, brands that need to be managed. So there's a little bit of leverage there. But the biggest thing to make it stick and to drive, I would say, institutional change is when the customers and and the consumers are actually changing the business approach. Um, That's what I've seen the last you know, kind of halfway through my tenure here is a clear shift in the external world that brought, again, one didn't convince the other, but it, it brought the sustainability and the business strategies together. They just converged because they needed each other.
2: Jill, what do you see uh, as a driver at Cargill to uh, build this team out and bring you on? So being privately held, investor pressure doesn't factor into it as much for us. But I would say also customer pressure. So our customers are you know Campbell's and other CPGs, retailers, food service companies. Um, so the the pressure that they've felt, and not just the pressure but the opportunity as well that they've seen with consumers. Um, Them building it into their business strategy and then where we sit in the value chain is, you know, we are an important supplier to many of these people. And so we need to align our strategies to help our customers win in this space. And I would say it's not just pressure, but where we see the most movement internally is when a customer's buying behavior aligns with their sustainability aspirations, and that can be not true in all cases, but that's where you can really see um, sort of internally people get up and notice is when that happens. Dave, do you want to add something to that?
3: Yeah, I just, I, I want to, um, you know, give Cargill and Cam, it's it's interesting, perhaps ironic that we're both on this call, but, and that point is, is right on target. I think we both alluded to this, but we have worked you know this topic of sustainability integration and the market value or the the kind of opportunity um, is are it's the subject of meetings I've had with Carve leadership now for several years and we've worked together to try to find both ways like we would bring an idea they'll bring an idea we'll, we'll brainstorm about it we'll challenge each other and this is a, um, you know this is an indication of something that's happening across all sectors it's not we just happen to be on this webinar, but you're seeing, we're seeing this not just within sectors, but also across sectors, but that's really where the value chain starts to get excited, right? When, when a big company like Cargo can see value that its customers are placing on it, and we can see opportunity in our supply chain, that's where a lot of this really clicks, and it's, it moves at a much quicker rate.
1: In mid-September, European financial services giant ING committed to steering its 500 billion euro loan portfolio towards investments in technologies, services and business models that support the Paris Agreement goal of limiting global temperature increases to less than two degrees Celsius. To steer that strategy, the company created what it calls the Terra Approach. It's a way of measuring the potential impact of an innovation against what's currently available to that sector. So it's focusing first on the sectors producing the most greenhouse gas emissions, and it's supporting you know, investments in technologies and infrastructure that will help speed a transition away from, from those emissions. So the, the ones that are up first are energy, the automotive industry, shipping and aviation, construction, and commercial real estate. ING plans to make this methodology available to other banks in collaboration with the Two Degree Investing Initiative, which helped develop the the whole idea in the first place. To glean more details about the commitment and how it came up with the Terra approach, I spoke with Leon Winans, the Director of Global Sustainability for ING. Here's our interview. What prompted this strategic shift in, in vision as far as your investment strategy goes?
4: Yeah, so just like a lot of American companies and our clients, we strongly believe in in the Paris Agreement, and and we support the idea that a transition to towards a well below two degree scenario and, and preferably one point five degree is necessary. And if you that is your 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 vision, that means that a transition of the economy is needed, and and in that transition we will need uh, tomorrow a, a different technology mix than we have today. And that transition requires trillions of capital. And uh, bank lending is a, a significant, uh, it's, it's the most significant source of external capital uh, for companies. And that's where we come in. So the whole idea is if we can future proof our clients then we can also future-proof ourselves, and ultimately we will future-proof society and and, and grow our business.
1: Now, you might not have a a, a fix on this yet, but your lending portfolio is more than 500 billion euros. Yeah, 600 dollars. Yep. So, how you talk about shifting it and steering it toward the two-degree goal. How long is it going to take to shift it to support that vision?
4: Yeah, so that the, the the real shift is, is of course going to happen in in in, in the real economy. Huh? So the the real shift is taking place with our clients, and 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 for the speed, we will depend on uh, the speed that will be taken uh, with with the clients and in, in, in the different sectors. Um, so we we don't know yet what what the time frame is going. Uh, to be, but that's why we are now starting, building up first uh, experience and see how we can accelerate that change. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, so you created the Terra assessment approach or the Terra approach to identify the potential investments. Um, So what considerations does that include?
4: Yeah, so when when we started developing uh, this and we've been working on this concept for almost uh, four years. Uh, we had a few observations. And the first one is, um, there is not one single road to, to Paris. Uh, if, so if the two degree scenario is the road to Paris, there is not one road. There are multiple roads and they differ for each sector. So the first consideration is that it, we need a an approach which is sector-based. Um, the second one is that in those sectors, these scenarios will be different, but based on the technology. So, if you take, for instance, the automotive industry, what there what is crucial over there is not so much in how are we going to how are we going to change the the production of the cars, but how do we get more electric or uh, low carbon uh, vehicles on the road. So there are different. Uh, levers in, in, in each uh, sector where, uh, which make uh, the difference um, in, in, in this uh, transition and change that, it ne- that is needed. So that's the second one. So the first one is sector-based. The second one is technology mix. The third consideration is we need a tool which is forward-looking instead of backward-looking. Uh, so that is different from carbon accounting, what you also see uh, sometimes. We need an approach which is is, is, is forward-looking uh, because you don't only want to know where your clients are today, but you want to know where they are heading tomorrow. And that is the change and that is where the investments uh, come in. And the fourth, and that has to do with with the third point, is that it, it that's what makes Terra an inclusive approach. So it's not about how are we going to exclude companies, exclude portfolios, exclude uh, clients. The question is, how are we going to facilitate the transition
1: mm-hmm. okay so you mentioned it's sector based and you did mention one sector as an example but what sectors are you prioritizing
4: yeah so we we focus on a set of sectors which account for 70 80% of the overall uh CO2 emissions so next to automotive that will be uh, shipping and uh, aviation uh, Commercial real estate, residential mortgages are big users of uh, power, uh, the power generation sector, of course, itself. And uh, in the industry, we look predominantly at steel and cement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So can you provide an example of an actual investment that was inspired by the Terra approach? You, you gave a, a, a hypothetical one, but is there an actual real investment um, that you can mention that was inspired by Terra?
4: No, no, we're not there yet. Huh? So, so we just uh, launched uh, the approach. So, we we co-developed this approach with uh, uh, the Two Degree Investment Initiative, which is an external, uh, not for profit.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, we make use of a lot of the data that they have uh, access uh, to. Because for us, two things are uh, important. Uh, The first is it should be a a reliable uh, third-party-based approach. And that's why we we teamed up with with an external party. Uh, And that's also what makes this approach approach science-based. And the second is that we really want to see if we can team up with other banks as well to create a market standard. Because for a lot of stakeholders, that makes it, there are a lot of initiatives uh, out there, and if we can co-create co-de- and co-develop a, a market standard uh, further, that's going to help us, but also stakeholders to compare and 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 also getting it on a, on a higher level. So that's why we're reaching out quite early. We don't have our first uh, reports on it published externally yet, and uh, we now start implementing it.
1: Right. So you just mentioned other banks, and you have Open opted to open source this methodology. So can you describe how you'll do that? You know, what, what's the process of doing that?
4: So first one, step back. If you look at measuring, if you are on a two degree pathway, then we are confronted with, with two issues. The first one is the availability of data. So a lot of companies still don't disclose all the data yet, or they don't disclose it in a, a structured way. So that's, that's challenge number one. And challenge number two is if you have the data, how do you attribute them to lending products? And that is different for investment. So, if you're an investor and you have 2% of the share in a company, then you can say, well, 2% of the emissions are attributed to my investment. In a lending situation, if you deal with a group of, in a syndicate of seven other banks, an export facility of health equipment for a certain company, yeah, what part of the emissions are you going to attribute to that lending product? So the availability and the attribution to lending product, these were the two challenges. And that's where we teamed up with the Two Degree Investment Initiative, because they already have the data, they use it already for investment. And we co-developed uh, this attribution methodology. And uh, we left that with 2DI. And in that sense it's open source and, 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 and free to use for other banks as well. So the only thing they have to do is contact to the di and, and, and see uh, how they can use it in their own uh, portfolios and what we would like to do as well is, mm-hmm. is to see if we can co-develop this with some other banks further and to, to make this approach more mature.
1: Got it. Okay, so you've just announced this. What's next and, and how will you measure success?
4: Yeah, so uh, what's next? First thing is form a group of banks who want to co-lead this initiative further uh, with us. So that's that's an open invite. And based on the first reactions, uh, well, there are already peers uh, signing up. And there's a lot of interest from all sides of of the world. So from Asia, the Americas, and also from Europe. So that's really uh, great. The second is, of course, implementing this in our own business that's, that's the second part. So we're now working on uh, the first dashboards of the different uh, sectors,
2: uh, scenarios
4: for the different sectors, um, and then based on those uh, scenarios, start engaging with our clients because that's what it's all about. Engage with our clients. Well, this is uh, what 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 the sector is is moving to. This is where you are. Because the approach is forward-looking, we can, in this methodology, we can see, okay, if you do nothing, you will be, in five years, you will be uh, here compared to the scenario. Is that where you want to be, or does that mean additional uh, investments? Uh, And these conversations we're getting, uh, uh, we're going to start them uh, as of tomorrow, uh, so to say. Of course, the ultimate measure of success is to what extent do we have our portfolio aligned with this two-degree pathway? Because for us, it's quite simple: if if we future-proof our clients, then we will future-proof ING, and ultimately, we will also future-proof society.
5: GreenBiz is committed to supporting clean economy organizations that put access and equity at the center of their mission. In other words, those that are addressing both social and environmental challenges. In conjunction with our upcoming Verge 18 Conference and Expo, we've launched an inaugural Clean Energy Equity Showcase, designed to honor and highlight three Bay Area-based organizations that are doing exemplary work to create inclusive and equitable clean economy workforce development opportunities. This year's clean energy equity changers include Grid Alternatives, the Green Lining Institute, and Rising Sun Energy Center. And so as part of our effort to elevate their work, I wanted to speak with the leaders of each of these organizations, bringing those interviews straight to you listeners of the Green Biz 350 podcast. Last week, you heard from Erica Mackey of Grid Alternatives. And today, I have the honor of speaking with Jody Pincus, Executive Director of Rising Sun Energy Center. Hi, Jody. Doing great. Thanks for making the time. So I want to dive right in. When it comes to the conversation about clean energy and equity, to ensuring that we build a clean economy that works for all, where are we now? Well, I think that we're moving in the right
6: direction in terms of building a clean economy. I actually don't think we have a choice as we're not in the fight against climate change anymore. Climate change has arrived um, and we're really in the resiliency and adaptation. So I think it's imperative that every business is either impacted by climate change or impacts it. So in terms of addressing that and becoming more resilient and and adapting to it, we're heading in the right direction. I think the equity piece still remains a question mark. And I think here is an opportunity, while we look at climate adaptation and resilience, there's a real opportunity to not leave anybody behind and bring everybody along so that the clean economy is for everyone. And that there's not this tension between, um, you know, dirty jobs of the past and jobs of the future. That we really think about how do we create, create careers for people that are sustainable, that lift people out of poverty, Um, into the clean economy, and so that the narrative is not one where a person has to choose between a job in an oil refinery that pays more and is benefited versus a job in the clean economy. Um, So I think on that level, there's still a lot of work to do, and I think there are essential um, coalitions and partnership building that has to happen around that. And then I think in terms of also how the technology rolls out. Um, it's really important that the new technology rolls out into everyone's hands. And we really look at what does it mean to have a just transition, a transition where there's good jobs, a transition where those who are f- hurt first and worst by climate change, who don't have the security net, for example, you know, I think we're seeing a lot in Napa um, with the fires, those who were renters are still still do not have homes. They didn't have insurance, right? We're seeing the results also from hurricanes. Who's impacted the most? And making sure
5: that the security nets and blankets are there for everyone. So based on that, when we these are big visions and goals, what, how do we translate that onto the ground into affecting people's lives? What, what needs to happen next?
6: For us at Rising Sun, what we're really concerned about is not just about job creation for job creation's sake, because we know, for example, in California, that we have a very low unemployment rate, um, although those amongst Latinos and African Americans are are still disproportionately higher, and those among youth are even higher. Um, And even though we have a low unemployment rate, we still have very low wage jobs. And so we're the richest economy and the poorest economy. Um, and so at Rising Sun, what we care about are careers for people that really lift them out of poverty. And we see that training people for jobs in the trades that are unionized and benefited with pensions, where a lot of actually the climate adaptation work is going to be, whether we're building, you know, you're an operating engineer and you're building a wall for sea level rise, or whether you're doing utility scale solar. Um, So we really want to make sure that when we're thinking about jobs in the clean economy, that these are what we call high road jobs, that they're jobs that actually are sustainable, that don't displace people. We're also, um, you know, when we think of one of the biggest problems in the state, it's displacement and gentrification in major metropolitan areas, San Francisco, Oakland. So how can we use this opportunity um, to provide people with careers so that they don't have to move and they can actually build the buildings, the built environment, and you know work in the trans, work with clean transportation in the fields in their communities, and they don't have to commute in. Um, so those are some tangible ways we can do that. I think we can also look at when we think of cap and trade proceeds or rate payers, um, who all pay into a public surplus uh, charge on our utility bills, those monies are essentially, you know, tax dollars. And we have to make sure that the people who are impacted by pollution, by, you know, climate change are benefiting um, with services. So how do we bring electrification to low income community and disadvantaged communities? How do we, you know, make transportation, that is highly accessible for those communities how do we make those homes healthy um, because many of these homes are near ports and near freeways um, so i think there's a lot of you can have this theoretical understanding of it
5: but really we need resources and funding to support this work on the ground well, that's a perfect transition to my next question, which is thinking about the private sector. What's the role, the responsibility, the opportunity for the business community to, to support all this?
6: Well, I think, you know, I think we've seen corporate social responsibility um, become stronger year after year. And I think, you know, even the next generation, the millennial generation, they really care about, they really understand that humans' place on Earth means not just profit for profit's sake, but actually taking care of our communities. And I think corporations, it's their job to play a significant role in taking care of the community. So I think when they think about, you know, I think it's critical that corporations step up to that challenge and and think about ways that they can engage in the community, that they can also think about their technology and make sure it's accessible. Um, And that really in the job creation piece, that they can really think about, how to really
5: support the workers that are doing the work. We're doing some work together around our upcoming Verge 18 conference to create the conditions for having really digging into some of those, those conversations as well. So thanks for your partnership on that. But before we close out, Jody, I want to give you an opportunity just to share one thing about the the work that you're doing currently at, at, um, at Rising Sun that, has you most excited or that you're you're most fired up about these days
6: gosh there's so many things um and also if i could just go back to the last point i really think that um you know rising sun we can't do this without the business community and we can't do this without the partnership we don't create the jobs we don't create the technology And so I think partnering with community-based organizations like Rising Sun doing the work is so essential. And it's that real ecosystem of partnership um, that will move us into the just equitable future that, you know, I know at Rising Sun we care very deeply about. You know, I think think right now the convergence between um, economic sustainability and then climate Change is really exciting because I think as we think about all the issues that we're facing with climate change, there's a real opportunity that we're creating a different future for ourselves and I know for me, my children. And so that that really excites me. And then seeing how that impacts an individual person's life, you know, at Rising Sun, for example, um, you know, we've had we have folks who are coming home from prison who need an opportunity, who need a second chance. And in the ability to provide that and lift them out of poverty, we had um, one person who worked for us. Um, He now works for a major solar corporation um, and he's their top sales guy. It was really hard getting him the job, but now he has the job. He's also built, bought a home in Vallejo. And so, I, and we know that these impacts, they're not just impacting him, they're intergenerational impacts. They're affecting his children and his children's children, and then they're also societal. And so I think that's, what, that's the deep
5: connection to the work that keeps me you know, at Rising Sun for 12 years. Jody Pincus is the Executive Director of Rising Sun Energy Center. Thank you so much, Jody. Thank you.
6: It's been a pleasure.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com/slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, events that we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz Events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And thanks to Greenbiz350's director, Stephanie Joyce. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McHour. Thanks for listening.